You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What do you do when your dream dies? Do you curse your fate and resign yourself to a life of limitation and unhappiness? Or do you create a new dream that enriches your life and the lives of many others? Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another opportunity to expand and enrich your world. One of the ways that you can definitely accelerate your growth is by choosing to read more wonderful books. And our sponsor, Audible, offers you a free downloadable audiobook of your choice. You choose from more than 180,000 titles. You get to keep it. And you also get an entire month free of all of Audible service. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose a form of audio empowerment today. I really value your presence here, your loyalty by listening to this show again and again and I'm going to ask you for a favor. Go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for this show. One of the easiest ways to do it is to leave a comment about your biggest takeaway from today's episode. And that will help the show to gain more visibility. Then more and more people can have the opportunity like you to enrich their lives. Thank you in advance for doing that. Today's guest was living his dream. That dream exploded. In the wake of that explosion, he found out that he had a life-threatening illness. Now, you know he wouldn't be on this show if he hadn't created a new, empowering dream and lived into it. I'll let you discover his inspiring story as he tells it. Get ready to learn and feel good as you listen to Integrative Nutrition Health Coach Lyle Haugen. Lyle, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. I really appreciate you inviting me on your show. It's amazing. Well, it's um, the honor. Let's say the honor is we're both sharing an honor here. And um we would uh storytellers i was talking to lyle just before the interview and uh he he really you really need to know he has a very interesting name with a hidden some hidden meanings to it so the name is lyle haugen lyle take it away break it down for us what does that mean well haugen is a norwegian or scandinavian descent um in the Norwegian language, it uh, means hill or rise of land. And it was shortened, I'm not sure at what point, I think when my grandfather came over in the 1860, some 65, somewhere in there. Uh, he shortened it from Honorhaugen, which was A-N with the two little dots over the E. 
which means over. So apparently I'm over the hill. <laughs> and then Lyle means? Well, it's shortened from Isle, so it means island. So I'm the island over the hill. So guests, you uh, storytellers, our guest today is the island over the hill who has a fascinating story <laughs> because the the man speaking is far from being over the hill. So, uh, Mr. Island Over the Hill, who influenced you the most when you were a child? Oh, Lewis, I thought about that quite a bit. Um, you know, I would have to say probably my parents. We discussed this in the in the preamble there. We, we were discussing my my parents were sort of later starters, if you know what I mean. They they never met later till later in life. My father was born in 1916, my mother in 1918. They met when they were in their late 30s. My mother had spent 10 years in a tuberculosis sanitarium prior to uh, the advent of penicillin. And my father spent the entire war working on the farm because he was the youngest of eight and had to stay and make food. Mm -hmm. They were both highly educated. My father was a bachelor's in electrical engineering and my mother's a master's degree in library science and education. So they moved from from the U.S. when I was five to northern British Columbia. And uh, everybody says, well, why didn't you stay? Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to get a job at five. But. <laughs> <laughs> but no, both of them being highly educated and, and you know, raising me later in their life, I, I think everybody recognizes you're definitely different in your 20s than you are in your 30s and your 40s as far as your ability to... Uh, tolerate things if you know what i'm saying yeah yeah so what was sort of wrapping this in the beginning to get to the end i have been exposed to this life-threatening dis disease that you uh mentioned in your in your intro called diabetes i have never been not exposed to it my mother was gestational I came out of the womb on a C-section at 10 pounds, 4 ounces, 24 inches long. Mm. I didn't fit in a bassinet, so they had to put me in a crib. In 1962, the year I was born, there was no such thing as in and out of the hospital like they have today. You were in for two weeks. So few stories were my mother would come down to try to feed me, and half the time I was in some nurse's arms halfway around the hospital someplace because she was showing me off. <laughs> so... And then one time, apparently I was, I don't know, you might want to cut this, apparently I was in kiddie porn because I was in that big, that, that big, uh, what do you want to call it, not bassinet, but the crib, and four days after I was born, uh, two twin five-pound girls were born, and they were sitting there, had one on each side of me, and they were taking pictures, apparently, and going ooh and ah and all that kind of thing, so it's a great story to tell when I'm uh, kind of sitting at the lounge and there's a lady on each side. I just say, well, I'm really not comfortable unless I have one of you on each side. It's not my fault. It's imprinting. Yeah, it's imprinting, and I'm sure that um, uh, on an unconscious level, this is shaping a lot of your choices as you right. go as you move through the world. I love that story. That that's I think that's an image that we won't forget. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I have friends. I have friends that say that sometimes they say the way you talk. I get this image in my head. I just can't get it out. It's like I want to. <laughs> I want to stab that inner eye. Why? No, it's a, it's a, it's a, we need images that make us smile and laugh. And, and, you know, I mean, come on, that's, that's an innocent image. I mean, you know, you can yeah. play around with it and call it kitty porn, but 
No, it's great. Um, I well, in my younger in my younger years, sorry, Louis. In my younger years, um, my family was kind of divided in the sense that my dad uh, was a farmer and he was trying to break new land up in this part of the world here in northern Canada. And he was out all day, you know, in the middle of nowhere doing his thing. And my mom was teaching school and doing whatnot. I kind of ended up halfway raising myself. My older sisters were already pretty much off to university or doing their own thing. So I spent quite a bit of time alone, but most of it was in the bush. Mm-hmm. So from the age of seven, I, uh, I was a trapper till the age of 17. So what were you trapping? Oh, I started out small, uh, you know, weasels, squirrels. Uh, tried to hang around all the old boys, try to find out where I could get information. It wasn't as easy in those days as it is to now. You had to know somebody, right? So turned out my father's land kind of invaded another man's trapping rights. And, you know, we found that through the thing. And I went and talked with him and he taught me everything I needed to know. Even though it was on his line, I was trapping on my father's father's land. So that was perfectly legal and acceptable. Did you have a childhood dream of who you wanted to be as a grown-up? Absolutely. In uh, in the late '60s, it was all about space race. Mm. So the space the, the space race was you know pretty prevalent. I, I I saw Neil Armstrong you know step on the moon, all those kind of things, and I actually wanted to be an aerospace engineer. You know, with my dad as an engineer and my mother highly educated, I kind of had the access to higher education as far as what it did for you. And I was always fascinated by my father being an engineer, yet deciding to be a farmer. Hmm. And so, why didn't you pursue that? Well, after 10 years of trapping, my last year, actually, at the age of 14, I became a, a director of the Trappers Association, which kind of got me in touch with a few other people in the industry. And at the age of 16, I actually left school in grade 11 and went for an entire year trapping with this gentleman as an assistant. And you began trapping when you were seven. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so wow. Th- this actually finished off a 10 year career. I did one year out there and uh, spring beaver and the whole thing. And then I went, I got to do something else. Well, that's great because now I'm dying to know how did you discover and choose deep sea commercial diving as your profession? Well, my next venture, I ended up being a pipeliner working in the oil and gas industry and through a couple of different hires and companies, I managed to get into the production end of things, which is after everything is established is a fairly steady, consistent job. So I was an oil field operator, gas slash gas field operator, looked after compressor stations and gathering systems. And at that time, fairly technical stuff, fairly engineering type stuff. So it was all the kind of things that I was interested in. That's where I ended up going with that. And then we're getting into the early 80s here. So we had a lot of offshore happening, you know, in uh, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And, you know, it was in the news. And I was watching that. And, you know, like, how do they do that? So I would check into that. And it turns out they kept divers on station all the time. Mm-hmm. So I got looking into the profession of diving. And it really fascinated me. And it, it I had kind of kissed my... My engineering degree goodbye because I had left school, and it wasn't because I couldn't do the school. It was because I was bored to death, Lewis. Right. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> Absolutely bored to death. So I thought this would be a second chance to kind of be like an astronaut. 
I get, you know, what I'm getting but, but is that but, that... but but you're not an author or whatever you want to call yeah. it. Yeah, well, what I'm getting is that you are a guy who needs a sense of adventure in his life. And that's that's great. That's exactly what you're getting. So, yeah. you know, lots lots of adventure. Uh, so so uh, I, 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 I got, sorry, I got organized to go to school. I went down to Los Angeles. I was there for a year. And I'm sorry, this is an important part because part of the training was some, you know, extracurricular courses, certain things that you could do, maybe operate an ROV, maybe be a welder, maybe be something else. And I chose diver medic. Mm-hmm. I want you to visualize this in a saturation dive, which means you go down to whatever depth you're working at and you stay at that pressure until your shift is up or your, or, or your gig is over. And I'm not talking eight hours. I'm talking 20, 30, 40 days. So, if you're down at a thousand feet, Lewis, to get from that thousand foot depth to surface and decompress without having any issues is 28 days minimum. You're underwater for 28 days? No. So you can be underwater. Visualize this. You're down a thousand feet. You're out with your little thing. You know, you've got an umbilical. You come back through the umbilical. And you come into the bottom of what's called a bell. You get inside the bell. You close the inside door. They bring the bell up so it's at the exact same pressure where you're diving at. They bring it up to the surface chambers, transfer under pressure into these chambers. Next crew goes in. You come out. You're in the chamber and you're resting. When you shift out, you go into a separate chamber, and that's the decompression chamber, and you spend the next 28 days decompressing until you get to the surface. So to be in comparison, that is... Five times worse than going to the moon. Wow. Because you can be to to the moon and back in seven days or six days. Wow. We saw that that with Apollo 13, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So to be in that condition, now the next thing is you're breathing a trimix. So nitrogen, helium, mostly helium, and oxygen. The helium affects your vocal cords. We all know that. What most people don't know is 1,000 feet of pressure, which is 500 PSI, affects your vocal cords as well. You're, you're, you're talking in a dense air. You're, you're talking in an air that is 30 atmospheres denser than the one that we live in. Well, so that, cha- that change in vocal cord and the reaction, if you blow down to a 1,000 feet, if you needed a doctor to blow down into the chamber because somebody was squirting blood or there was an accident or something happened, they couldn't do it because if they've never experienced it before, Breathing helium causes the synapses in your brain to come closer together because it's a smaller molecule than nitrogen, causing excitation in the brain and creating what's like Parkinson's syndrome. So you could blow a doctor down there, but he'd be sitting there shaking and he couldn't talk and he probably couldn't understand you anyways. So you need people on the outside that spend 28 days learning your language and then they put you inside pretty much as the hands of the doctor and they tell you what to do. I was trained to suture. I was trained to sew up all the layers of the muscle back up until you can close the skin, make swain darts to reinflate lungs, tracheostomies, whatever basically needed to get done. Wow, this is um, this would make a very interesting documentary. Maybe one has been done. I don't know. Now, you were involved in a natural gas explosion. Now, how and when did that happen? Well, after dive school, I had, I'd lined up a. Uh, a job as a diver medic in the Beaufort. They were just starting to do some work in the in the mid '80s, there, if you remember that. And uh, 
I had a, a job lined up with CanDive with uh, Mr. Newton. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I needed to work the winter, Lewis. So I went back as an operator. I talked with a couple of companies, and I went out on a few fly-in jobs. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And I woke up one morning, as typical, one of these work camps, uh, you know, a diesel engine running off my bedroom window there. So I woke up not really all that happy and went out, had some breakfast, looked at the temperature and went, oh, no. It was 38 below Celsius. Mm -hmm. Step outside, you know, you can tell it's really cold because all the exhaust, there's like a glass ceiling. It only rises 20 feet and stops. When it's not when it's not that cold, vapors rise considerably high into the air. When it's 40 below, they rise about 30 feet and they stop because they're too cold to rise anymore. It's a very creepy thing to look at. And the snow you're walking on is like walking on popcorn, right? It's so crunch, 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 crunch. I get into a backhoe. I drive out to a location to do a job. Out there is what's called a dehydrator. It's a piece of uh, equipment that the natural gas flows through and it's... It strips it of water so that the gas doesn't freeze in the pipe and cause what's called hydrates. So I'm out there in a backhoe, and it's uh, about 35 miles from camp. Most of it's Muskeg Road. If you've ever seen Ice Road Truckers, it's uh, like that road but worse. Those are really good roads. That's like a highway that we would consider up there that they drive on that you see. So these are pretty rough, and the backhoes bounce lots, and they're rubber tires. I get out there, and the situation here, the reason I was out there in a backhoe was because the uh, the stairs had fallen. The muskeg had sunk away from the piling, down about three feet. So you'd get to the top of the stairs, and then you'd reach up, open the door, and then you still had to throw one leg up in there, reach around the door on the panic hardware, the other hand around the sill, and then just pull yourself right up into the building. So I was there to move the steps out, put some gravel in, put the steps back in. But my first job was to check the unit. And when I got there, it seemed to be steaming more than normal. So I call the top of the stairs. I do exactly what I just said before. I reach up, grab the thing in and around the, grab the panic hardware, pull myself up in Lewis. And I'm just standing in the doorway, right in the door jam. And I'm dressed for 38 below. So I got all kinds of clothes on everything else, but my right glove is off. My little bit of my face is exposed. I got glasses on, you know, it's very bright out actually. So I got sunglasses on, but right over by the heating unit, I catch a slight slight movement and what it is is it's an orange glow and right instantly i knew what it was and i start to turn around in the door jam and as i turn around in the door jam it lights up boom next thing i know i'm flying through the air it punched all the breath out of me so i'm i'm trying to take a breath but as i'm flying through the air little fingers of fire are coming past my eyes the fires were going faster than I was flying through the air. And then it was coming back and, and slowly moving its back way towards my face right about the time I took a breath and basically I was breathing fire before I hit the ground 45 feet later. Mm -hmm. What year was that, man? 1985. This, this month, 1985. So that was obviously devastating. So... How was that event a life changer for you? What were the most important things that changed? I lost my diving career in a split second. Wow. Because after that explosion, I ended up being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. When I, was, when I was healing from my burns, I was looking across the street, watching the house number across the, seat, get, the street sorry, get fuzzier and fuzzier. I was having a hard time focusing on it, and I had 20-20 vision. 
And then my thighs were burning up and I was thirsty and it was the classic signs. I knew exactly what I had because of my diabetic training. Now, how long were you in that state of recovery? Well, there was, you know, first of all, I was utterly stunned and then it seemed doomy and gloomy and then I was angry. But how, long, know, you, how long, you, you yes, go, how long of a period was it? Pretty, pretty short, actually, Lewis. Uh, you know, it was a couple of months because I didn't have, uh, I've never really been one for wallowing for too long because see, we just don't have time. And I had to try to figure out what I was going to do next. Wow. So, wow. So now you find out you've got diabetes, you find out, well, you obviously can't dive anymore. How, how did you start making a living when you stopped diving? Well, I went back to operating again. It was kind of a standby at that point, and I continued doing that until I found an option of actually becoming a subcontractor, working for somewhat for myself. And I did that over in another spot of northern Alberta, but lo and behold, six months after doing that, one of the oil companies recognized my work, phoned me up directly and said, uh, quit working for your company and look after all of our stuff. So he set me up as a contractor at the age of, uh, the ripe old age of 23. Mm. Wow. So I, I contracted oil wells and gas wells by the time that stint was over five years later. Um, I had half a dozen employees and a lot of headaches. So from 23 to 28, you did this contracting work. And I did all that trying to figure out how to control my diabetes, which never happened. Uh, yeah, we're going to get into that. That's fascinating. And, well, it's horrendous, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, uh, when you said before you did the contracting, you went back to operating, operating as in oil wells and gas wells. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So now I actually continued the, the company I was working for when I was blown up, put me back to work after I came out of the hospital. We went into, we went to another location. I went to kind of a low key, uh, you know, not a lot of excitement area, still flying. I was in the middle of nowhere and I actually started, I was making a decision either to become an engineer and chase that dream again or become a business owner mm. and just be in business and serendipity led me towards business. Wow. Now, did they compensate you financially for that accident? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. No. You know, their comment to that workers' compensation board was, well, it's a disease. You probably would have got it anyways. No, no, no. But the explosion, the injuries from that. Oh, well, I was only off work for about two weeks. <laughs> I see. Okay, well, no big deal. You almost lost your life, but hey, you know, only off work for two weeks. Okay. So what medical advice did you follow to manage exactly. and improve and improve your diabetes? I'm glad you asked that. Exactly what they told me to do. Which I was, was I was the poster child. Well, at that time, in the mid eighties, they had the what do you, would you call it, the uh, food pyramid that the government had uh, sort of subscribed or prescribed. Uh, and that was influenced heavily by back in the 50s when uh, Keyes, uh, the researcher, did all the work with fat, told everybody that uh, saturated fat was the problem with heart disease, and it's not, by the way. So that changed the whole dietary program. This is what I say, and I, was, I grew up in a house where my father did 
steak, potatoes, potatoes cooked in tallow. Wow. My mother followed the diabetic diet, which consisted of 55% carbohydrates, low fat, and she died at the age of 73 and he died at 84. Mm-hmm. So I lived up in a live experience. I lived in a live experiment of the diabetic diet that they were teaching at the time or the old fashioned sort of paleo way of eating, mm. which was quite interesting now that I look back on it now. Right. So you were following medical advice and you were not seeing improvement, correct? Correct. It was, it was up, it was down, it was everywhere, but where you wanted to be, I was either at two or 20. And for the people in the U S that would basically be 36 to 360. Now, what do those numbers mean? Because there are people uh, listening uh, who don't know about diabetes. All right. That's a good question. So the small numbers, which pretty much the entire world follows, except for the U S uh, stands for millimoles, M M O Ls. So it's just a measurement of the percentage of blood, so to speak in, or plus percentage of glucose in the bloodstream. Uh, the other number is uh, millimeter milligrams per deciliter. So just a little different volume that they go by. Oddly enough, that measurement that they use is metric. It's the only metric measurement I think they use in the U.S., but that's, uh, that's the difference between those two numbers. Your range is supposed to be between 4 and 8 or 70 and 150. That is the typical operating blood sugar range. That's where the body wants to keep it at. And yours, yours was between 2 and 20. Not good. Not good. Well, when I was diagnosed, I was 41. <laughs> Man. Okay, so I now, lost, Lewis, I lost 26 pounds of muscle in seven days. No. Diabetic um, ketoacidosis, it's called. Ooh. Wow. Now, what made you decide at what point, what was the thing that made you decide, okay, that's is it, I'm taking control of my own health? Oh, I floundered for many years. Uh, I put 27 years in, I call it backwards, as far as looking after my diabetes. But I was doing everything that I knew how to do. That's all the information told me to keep doing the same thing. And I started accumulating secondary conditions. So type 1 diabetes is known as an autoimmune disease. Other autoimmune diseases are things like lupus, uh, Parkinson's actually, MS, um, you know, multiple sclerosis. We also have Crohn's colitis, IBS, uh, gastroparesis, Hashimoto's disease. There's about 130 different autoimmune diseases. And ironically, and I shouldn't say ironically, but they seem to be finding more and more of them. And we'll get back to that at another time. And I'll tell you why that probably is. So I was getting gastroparesis. I was had Crohn's colitis, IBS for 15 years. I had migrated to another business. I built a brand new unit, a filtration truck, and Lewis, I put an electric toilet in it because my life revolved around having a toilet. Yeah, wow. So what was the moment when you finally said, look, none of the advice I'm getting works. I've got to do it myself. What What was it, What and what steps did you take? Well, my health was failing and I was having trouble getting to work. I was kind of losing some work. When I did get work, it was, you know, I was running a little bit shy on money. I got a big job with my filtration unit. I knew I was going to be at least a week. And I really didn't have, embarrassingly enough, I didn't have the capital to be able to get enough food to go out there. So I only brought energy-dense foods and left all the superfluous stuff out 
And while I was out there, I got thinking to myself, you know, you only need to take insulin when you're eating carbohydrate. So I eliminated a whole bunch of carbohydrate. And then I went, well, if I'm eliminating the carbohydrate from the meal, I don't really need to take short acting insulin to counter the rise in blood sugar from, from eating that meal. So then what I did was I took my, what's called a basal, which is a, a type of insulin that lasts for a long time. I'm not on a pump, but I take this uh, insulin called Lantus, and it, and it schedules itself in your body for a 24-hour period of time. Well, I took that, and I raised the amount I was taking up and up and up and up until what I would do, Lewis, is I would eat a meal, and then I would just surf on that blood sugar until it got down to about four, and then I would eat another meal. And my blood sugar would rise up to, you know, maybe close to eight. And just like on an oscilloscope, you know how it goes up and down on an oscilloscope? You know, you have that wave, mm -hmm. all right? If you take an oscilloscope and shorten the wave, it goes dramatically up and down like sharp spikes, correct? That's the way I used to be. You know, up to 20, down to two. Well, when you spread out that, that wave so that it's just up and down slowly, you can stay within the four to eight. And I started doing that on this job, and I started feeling great. And so you, I leave here eight. I, I leave here eight days later, and I continue this. And that's when I got on the internet and went, "Somebody else has got to be doing this, Lewis." And nobody was. Wow. So you know, it's interesting. This you discovered this because you didn't have enough money for. Uh, some other foods, and so it actually kind of saved your life. I mean, how yeah. long how long did it take you to get your life back? And how long did well, it take? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was I was very skeptical of this at first. I was wondering, you know, that's why I got online. Like, you know, should I be doing this? I was always told you had to have bread, you had to have carbs, you had to eat this stuff, right? And when I didn't, and I started feeling better, I went, wait a minute, are, are they telling me the right story? And, you know, seven years ago was about when this started. We were just starting to get some, you know, health stuff on the Internet, and it was kind of getting busy and noisy, and, you know, gluten-free stuff was being talked about a little bit. And, and, and then there's a little bit of scuttlebutt of this and everywhere, but nothing about what does a type 1 diabetic do. Because we are taught we have to eat this, we have to do this, we have to do this. That's just the way it is. So I was very skeptical. But I kept continuing, and I started doing a little bit of research, and I found out that, you know, if I increased the fat a little bit more, uh, backed off on the protein to a moderate amount, ate lots of vegetables, just whole foods, that my control was phenomenal. And then I developed a recipe bar. We'll try to get people to talk about that towards the end. I, I developed this energy bar that would allow me to maintain my blood sugar through the night so I could get eight hours of sleep without having a low blood sugar. And when I put that package together, that was at about the three-month mark uh, after starting this. Everything just got up and up and up. What, what's in the energy bar? Uh, everything but the kitchen sink. <laughs> no, it, that's has, it, it has five different nuts. Okay. So there's, there's uh, Brazil nuts, um, hazelnuts, walnuts, pecans, Sometimes cashews or almonds, depending on which way you want to go there. There's several different seeds. So pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, hemp seeds, or hemp hearts. 
Um, what else we got in there? There is dried fruit, so uh, dried sour cherries and dried cranberries. We have maple syrup. We have honey. We have coconut oil. And then that is all made into a mixture, baked in the oven for a little bit, chilled, rock salted on the top, and then chocolate poured over top of that as a topping. Three ingredient chocolate, cacao, coconut butter, or cocoa butter, and honey. How did you develop this? I have no idea. Oh, I actually sat, I actually sat there one night and it was it was just this organic thing and I I, I wanted some nuts. So I went in and I I just grabbed a little bowl and I'm trying to portion control, right? So I grabbed a small bowl and I went, Well, I want some of them and I want some of them and I want some of them and then the bowl wasn't big enough. So <laughs> I want some of them. And then I went, wait a minute, and rather than eating this loose, why don't I try to tie this together with something? And it was just something that just went from here to there to, I actually built a different bar before this that you had to kind of press out and it used coca mana, but that's how I developed that. And, uh, then I just kept progressing from there, Lewis. So, and now this is being mass manufactured, right? Or, or you produce for the public, right? No, I don't do that. The reason I don't do that, I, I, I make it mass available to the public to do for themselves because the challenge Whenever you manufacture something, a lot of times due to laws, you have to change your ingredients to satisfy their needs, and those ingredients aren't healthy for you. Mm. Wow. So when did you actually become officially an integrative nutrition health coach? I graduated in 2015. I went back uh, 2014. I had this feeling that there was doom and gloom on the horizon for the oil industry. Because I got to tell you, Lewis, after I cleaned myself up and got my blood sugars under control and all my side conditions started to disappear, no Crohn's colitis, no gastroparesis, my eyes got better. I've got pictures from my ophthalmologist showing me the progression of getting better. And he just sat there and he says, I can't believe this. I've never seen anybody with problems with their eyes from being type 1 diabetic heal. Wow. It's powerful. So you got your degree in 2016? 15, actually, yes. 15, so, okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I, I had made this decision to carry to carry this out because it was almost like I was getting roadblocks put in front of me in my other business. This would come up, that would break down, this would happen. And finally, because everybody was looking at me, Lewis, and going, what have you done with yourself? So I would tell them. And then they would follow me, and then their health got better. My office manager was diagnosed with celiac. Mm. She went on a gluten-free diet, gained 30 pounds, was absolutely miserable. All right? I couldn't go near my office for, for days on end because she was so miserable. And I was just trying to let her, you know, heal up and get better. She finally started following what I was doing. She lost 80 pounds in seven months, started feeling so good, she ended up meeting a guy and got married. Wow. Now, so I do have to, I do have to caution my clients, there are side effects to what I do, and marriage is one of them. That's happened to two of my clients now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write that one down. Side effect could be marriage. Could be marriage. Okay. Um, or, okay, well, I won't even go there. So, what would you say to someone who's not willing to challenge the advice of doctors, even though their condition is not improving? Can you say anything well, to them that will help them to see the light? 
there's a condition that happens because of what we have and the way the medical system breaks it down. So if you're a, if you're a type 1 diabetic, which they classify as the most severe, you end up with an endocrinologist, you end up with a dietitian, you end up with a psychologist or psychiatrist, and you got your family doctor, and the four of them never talk to each other. Hmm. So you need to end up, as you're sick, trying to be a manager for yourself, trying to coordinate all these people and trying to figure out what's going on. The endocrinologist wants you to do this. The dietitian wants you to do that. The two should be working together. As soon as we compartmentalize healthcare, we forget about the whole. We work as one unit, Lewis. Okay, that that, that is a very important thing to share. But if a person, let's say you, you know that you could help someone, but they have locked in their minds, no, my doctors tell me, and they don't want to change that, what would you say to them to help them possibly change their minds well well, you could you could just um try it Mm. we're talking about food yeah i get you and and i guess the the, the endocrinologists have you brainwashed that you need to go to bed with a high blood sugar so that you don't have a low during the night because a low blood sugar can be immediately lead to seizures and death all right a high blood sugar can also lead to seizures and death but it takes a long time, Lewis, and the endocrinologist will probably be retired by then. You know, um, this is—it's great that you're sharing this. I, I guess what it comes down to is, you can only present the evidence to people, but ultimately it, they have to make a decision for themselves. Right, and I think problem with, with all diabetics is for most of us, none of this ever works. And we go back into the doctor, and then we get guilt-tripped because it's not working. Yes, yes, yes. But it's not our fault. No. It's, it's, it's the dogma you're teaching. Now, okay, so I, this, this brings me to, because this is, this is something I think about a lot, why are there many good medical professionals who are so misinformed about a condition as life-threatening as diabetes? Again, I would have to say because we compartmentalize everything. You know, there's there's uh, there's separation. If you if you're not a GP, then you've got to be a, a an internist or an endocrinologist or an ophthalmologist or some kind of ist, right? And it's it's the left thing doctor, the right thing doctor. And when we get that separation, everybody thinks that theirs is is the most important thing to go on, but the body works as a unit, uh. right? Yep, yep. The body works as a unit, and you can't have the endocrinologist saying, okay, you need to be taking this much insulin over here, but over here, the dietician is saying, no, you got to cut back on your food. Well, those two work together. Mm-hmm. So we really need to look at this as a holistic aspect. You have to look at as an entire, it, you know, I was listening to one of your podcasts, you talked about setting up a frame. You know, you, you picture something. Well, in the medical field, in diabetes, you've got one person pulls out one pixel out of the corner of that television screen and says, that's the most important pixel. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. The whole, you got to look at the whole picture. So this, this, these, are, these are the things that are really, why, why don't they, I don't know why they don't. They're 20 years behind, Lewis. They... Uh, they, they, they practice things that, uh, you know, they're busy. They learn a lot. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. They, I, I also they, think they, they, they have so much knowledge. 
and there's so many things going on. But I mentioned this to my doctor, Lewis. I said, you know, you guys impress me to no end. You go seven years, eight years, 12 years, maybe if you do a specialty. You learn the plumbing. You learn the electrical system. You learn everything about the body. I said, how many years did you take in nutrition? It's just about a week or so. He didn't even take that. No, I know. I know this is a big one. You hear this constantly and uh, with people who are improving their health through health and wellness solutions given by network marketing companies, they're up against that wall, too, that the medical profession is really dealing with you after you get sick, and then they're basically recommending surgery, as opposed to being able to understand the body and prevent it from getting sick and actually get well. Exactly. So what are the four variables a person with type one must manage? Can you just name them? Well, first of all, the four variables, we need to visualize it as a, it's my engineering kind of thinking and background. It's a quadratic formula. You know what I'm talking about? Well, uh, quadratic, a quadratic formula has four variables. Well, I, so in those, I don't, those I don't know about formulas, but I do know quadratic. But So what are the four variables for a lame person who doesn't understand math? <laughs> no worries. So we have insulin. Insulin is a hormone that is necessary to metabolize glucose. Glucose comes from food, many different parts of either carbohydrate, we call it bread. We can actually get carbohydrate out of protein. Some of that will break down into carbohydrate. So we've got the insulin. You have to balance how much insulin goes in to how much food you consume to how much going out. So those are inputs. Now we've got outputs, and the outputs are exercise. All right? The fourth one, which is kind of, I I visualize that as kind of a a quantum mechanic problem, which means, you know, is there something in there or not? Well, it could be depending on when you open it, right? And that is an adrenaline event. So if you're under stress or you get stressed out or in an accident or something happens, we switch from parasympathetic to sympathetic nervous system. We have an adrenaline event. So we, this vagal response through the vagus nerve, which means a wandering nerve, it attaches all the organs right up to the brain. Neat part is there's nine lanes of traffic going from the organs to the brain, one lane of traffic from the brain to the organs. And when you go into sympathetic mode, the first thing that gets shut down is your gut. Because in survival mode, if a tiger is chasing you and wants to eat you, it's not that important for you to be eating at that point. It's important to be getting up a treat. Okay, so what we have here are insulin is one, exercise is another, adrenaline events and what was the other one? I didn't. Well, yeah, we have insulin, food, food, insulin, then food. Okay. All right. Then we have our exercise. And then we have to try to figure out how to manage these unknowns that will just crop up on us. So it's kind of like the, the wild card of the bunch. So for the last one, you understand that very, very uh, thoroughly. But if you're talking to someone who's never heard any of that terminology... You're telling a person you've got to manage your adrenaline event, and they're going, huh? In, right, so let's, if, let's if, explain if, what an adrenaline event is. You're uh, right. You're supposing, supposing you were talking to a six-year-old kid with type 1, 
And you told them, so how would you make them understand the adrenaline event? Well, adrenaline event could be <laughs> something that was just shocking, set you aside, uh, made you go, oh my. Um, could be a sickness, could be a virus. Um, any of those type of things will, will, will kick in that response. Um, basically, it's feeling unsafe. Okay, so it would be anything that throws you off balance and messes with your body chemistry could be under the umbrella of adrenaline event. Right. Now, here's, a, here's, here's an interesting part. You're correct. Now, if I play pickleball really aggressively, because I kind of do, um, I can activate an adrenaline event because you're competing. So you even get it from being in heavy competition. Hmm. Isn't that amazing? No, it's not because we are this. We're like chemi- chemistry labs walking around here. I mean, I know that. You're now, correct, Lyle. You helped your office manager to improve her health. Now, please give me some other examples of people that you helped to um, reclaim their health by using your approach. Absolutely. So. I have, when I started all this, like I was mentioning, I had several people come to me and ask me, you know, what can I, what are you doing? Can you help me kind of thing? This is before I became a health coach. This. So I did become a health coach and then I started working with some people. One of them was my office manager. I started helping her. We already discussed that. And then, uh, let me see, there was a lady that came to me. You know, again, a friend introduced her, and she had Hashimoto's, so we worked on that, got rid of that, got her off all her medications. She led me to another lady who had polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, another autoimmune condition. Within 30 days, Lewis, I'm doing a follow-up meeting with her, a check-in meeting. I said, how are you doing? She says, horrible. I'm having my period. I said, oh, wow. Is this the normal time? And she goes, I haven't had one in nine months. So she was back to being normal again. Two years later now, she's lost 135 pounds. Wow. I had another lady that my, I had a renter in my house for a while. All of a sudden, the door flies open. I hear this scream for Lyle. And here's this gentleman carrying his mother in at the weight of 92 pounds, drops her on my couch and says, can you fix her? And I said, what's going on? the hospital gave her the choice of either going to the psych ward or going home to die. Mm. So I spent six months getting her back on her feet. This is, now, this is quite amazing. Thank you. And then we, we go to, uh, I think the best one was the gentleman that was, I had a friend up north and he says, you know that guy that works for me? And I said, yeah, he's going to be calling you soon. So he calls me. He's type 1 diabetic like myself. Let me Let me preface for a second here, Lewis. I spent a lot of my learning time dealing with people that were non-diabetics because my theory was this. If I can balance blood sugar in someone who's not a diabetic, why can't I do it in somebody who is? Now, the question is, you're saying, well, if you're not a diabetic, you don't have blood sugar control problems. Yes, you do. If you eat a certain meal and two hours later, like if you eat a large meal and two hours later you're hungry, that's a blood sugar control problem. Mm-hmm. By the way, have you written a book about this? I will. <laughs> okay. I, I will. It's kind of starting. But where I really want to be developing a book is, is, is in how do we develop this perfect storm in our body 
And then if we get blown up or if we have a divorce or if we have a, a, a virus, we all of a sudden get diagnosed with type 1. Right. What, if we, what if we stop that storm that happens? Because I've tacked it down to the other thing is how do you get these additional autoimmune diseases? So here's my final one I'll give you an example of. As I'm starting to get myself out there now and, and specialize just in type 1s and my website, Type 1 Simplified, I meet this lady who says, I read a thing by you and you give me some hope. Can you help me? Nobody else can help me. So I get on the phone with her as fast as I can on Messenger because it's easier to talk than it is to type. And I said, tell me what's going on. She has lupus, type 1, uh, diverticulitis, Crohn's colitis, IBS, celiac. Um, she's got a, a, a catheter in, permanent catheter for a bladder problem. And this lady is a radiologist nurse in classically trained in the medical field. She's on disability right now, hasn't been able to work for five years. I'm not surprised. A lot of doctors are very unhealthy. Yes, they are. Yeah, a lot of them. And, and so, all of this has to do with leaky gut. And so you helped her. Well, we're working on that right now. I've, okay. just, I've just taken her on in the last two weeks. Fantastic. By the way, like, what is your favorite book? I'm just curious. You know, so With your interests and your focus and the kind of mind you have, what is your favorite book? I don't really have a favorite book, but I do a lot of biographies and technical manuals, as you can probably tell. But if I do have a, a fiction writer, my favorite would have to be Clive Cussler. I don't know. Can you spell that? Clive, C-L-I-V-E, Cussler, C-U-S-S-L-E-R. So a book by Clive Cussler would be what? Uh, the Wrecker is one of them. The Wrecker. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, your favorite biography? I'd have to say Westinghouse. Oh, is, is George Westinghouse? Correct. George Westinghouse. What's the name of the book? Do you know? Well, it was mostly uh, just a, a video that I watched on him, you know, on the, the biography channel, right? Okay. You know, they kind of got into that fairly in-depth. I never really did read the book on him, but uh, he's a very fascinating character from the 19th century. Hmm. What about a favorite quote? Well, that would have to be, you know, experiencing type 1 diabetes and telling, they, they telling you to do this same thing over and over again. You can only guess what I would say, right? Albert Einstein, you know, doing the same thing over and over but expecting a different result is my favorite quote. Yeah, I'm not sure it's really Einstein's. No, it's probably not, but that's what everybody accredits to. But. I know, because that, that's the pro one of the problems with the, the Internet is that they attribute these quotes to people who never said them but i know which one you mean that uh you know the definition of insanity right yes um, definition of insanity what i'll do is probably what i published i'll say said by someone that's better that's <laughs> yeah. better yeah. you know that's that's better now very important here how can people contact you to if they're they want to seek some uh, you know consultation and guidance and help absolutely thanks for asking lewis you can contact me through my website, type1simplified.com. And the number one? The number one, or you can write it out. Either way, I've got them both. And I've also got CA as well as .com. So. Oh, okay. Either one will get you there. And, and on there, uh, you can sign up for the Sleep Solution, which is a free report that I have that has that bar recipe that you were asking about. Ooh. 
Yeah. So go ahead and grab that. And also in there is a report uh, kind of talk about pickleball and somebody that played pickleball with me. I used to take a lot of ibuprofen in the morning just to get moving. And uh, I, I fed both her and her husband a shake before we went and played pickleball. And, well, the story's on my website, but uh, they were overshooting and laughing and giggling because all of a sudden their joints all loosened up. So you have what is called a magic shake, right? Well, it's called the breakfast shake, but yeah, it, it has done some magic. And is is that recipe there too? It is. It's in the blog article on ibuprofen or the breakfast shake. Sounds like something I will read too. Any final thoughts for our storytellers? Well, for all the diabetics out there that uh, feel shamed that they're not doing things right, I want to reach out to them and say there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. It's the system they're teaching you. Mm. So contact me. Let's get it straight. Let's fix it. Let's work it out. Um, the other thoughts I have is I think the medical industry is going to change. And the reason I say that, Lewis, is my doctor finally came to me and says, I don't know how you're doing this, but show me. So I've been coaching him now for four months. That's fabulous because uh, if he's in a position to influence other doctors, then the word will get to where it should get because they need to know because they're unfortunately wield too much power. People give them power. They can do us good, but sometimes they don't. And that's that's a big problem. This has been fascinating, man. Uh, quite a journey uh, we both went on. <laughs> in this interview uh thank you very much well thank you lewis i really appreciate this and i and i hope your listeners do too i'm sure they will my friend and thank you once again storytellers for spending time today with me and lyle haugen definitely pay this forward especially if you know people that you care about who happen to be struggling with type 1 diabetes And whatever they're currently doing is not helping them. Let them check out the alternatives that Lyle offers. Let them know that they can hear this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. Remember that at that website, there's a free gift waiting for you, an ebook that I created to empower your communication called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. I will always emphasize that readers are leaders, and you have access to a free audiobook of your choice from our sponsor, Audible by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. You choose from more than 180,000 titles, and you also get an entire month free of all of Audible's service. Lyle, of course, offered very, very powerful insights into taking control of your own health. Now, I'm going to be cautious here. I'm not telling anybody to not listen to doctors, to not go to doctors. I have doctors that I respect and listen to. But we also need to pay attention to our own instincts sometimes. And we do have the right 
and the responsibility to explore other alternatives when the ones we're we're trying are not helping us. So, by all means, if you are struggling with your health and you've tried many, many things and they're not working, allow yourself to be open to exploring other opportunities to transform your health. One of them might just be the approach that Lyle Haugen has for rebalancing blood sugar and for improving your nutrition. Of course, to kickstart any change that you want to make, begin with the question, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.